You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello. Um, first of all, thanks for coming, everyone. There was a very stressful moment where it was raining today. Um, I think we were a little bit worried that we'd get rained out, but uh, the sun's come out for us, as has our gorgeous panel, so very exciting news. Um, I have that little blurb pleasure of introducing everyone, doing some housekeeping, uh, but most importantly, um, acknowledging the... Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the land, sky and waters on which we're meeting today. Um, and also to pay our respects to Elders past, present and the future leaders of our community. Um, we're meeting today and talking about the future of our cities. So I think it's really important to remember um, that that future wouldn't be the same without input from our First Nations people. Um, we honour their ongoing deep spiritual connection with the country and with respect, today and all days, we tread gently to help reconcile and pave the way for a united and harmonious future for all. Um, bit of a photography notice, we're taking some happy snaps of you. If you do not want to be in a photo, please just let us know. Um, obviously, we're not in the business of putting images anywhere if you do not want them. So, just so you see someone snapping, just say, go away. <laughs> Um, we also have a little project map um, Q&A and just a reminder of who's who on the panel. Um, so it would be awesome if you have a pen, we've got some pens at the back, if you could potentially just mark out um, on that map some inspiring spaces from the city that we're in today. Um, we're interested in doing a bit of an interactive map. Um, and we're also really keen to get some information from you today if you choose to, and you can do that by... Um, scanning the QR code and just filling in a little bit of information. Um, it's all about community participation today, so it wouldn't really be the same if we didn't get a bit of participation from you guys. So, um, I now have the pleasure of introducing everybody. I'm going to try and do it in order, so just excuse me while I rustle my papers around. Okay. We have Samantha. Um, Samantha has over 18 years experience in Australia and in the US as an urban planner, community development advocate and engagement specialist. So she's obviously got no free time. Uh, her passion lies in creating equitable and lovable places that people can truly connect with. Born in London to Bangladeshi parents, she is first generation and has always been passionate about including voices that don't often get a seat at the table. Samantha has worked in both the public and the private sector, as well as not-for-profit, with a specialty in participatory design and collaborative approaches. Russell, Russell. Ash. Uh, it's Ash's first M Pavilion today, so we're super excited to have him on the panel. You told me earlier, so sucked in. <laughs> All right, so Ash has been painting explosively overseas. I love your bio, definitely my, one of the best. And across Australia since 2003. 
He's exhibited extensively in galleries as well as creating numerous large-scale site-responsive outdoor projects. Ash is noticeably recognised for his impulsive and exuberant style. So good. Um, attributed to repurposing the repurposing of fire extinguishers to paint, a resourceful practice that has attracted significant attention at home and abroad. Now we've got lovely Amy. Is this mic working? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Amy is a senior lecturer in urban horticulture at the University of Melbourne and believes that sustainable, resilient and livable cities of the future will emerge from the cities that proactively add biodiversity and ecology considerations to their business as usual. As an urban ecologist with an established research career, Amy has spent time working as a researcher and as a specialist consultant, working on a diverse range of projects to develop green, healthy cities and towns, and to conserve resilient ecosystems where we live and work. Nehran was forced to flee Syria, leaving behind her sons who had been conscripted to the military. She travelled to Lebanon, Thailand, and finally by boat on Australian waters in 2012, where she and her family were taken to Christmas Island. Now, she's the owner and trained chef of Flavours of Syria, which is the delicious food behind you and really all across Melbourne. And she runs cooking classes with Free to Feed and has created a community of beloved fans. Uh, just about 30 seconds with Naran will make you understand why she has such a community of fans. Um, as a community and social leader, she is also an interpreter for Arabic and Persian, and she has featured as a guest on SBS Radio on various occasions. In 2021, Naran was awarded the Victorian Refugee Achievement Award for teaching both swimming and English. So, another person that has a lot of spare time. Tanya is an architect, advocate, writer, researcher, and educator. She is the co-founder of architectural research practice Opla, which is formerly Open House. At Opla, she focuses on engaging people and communities with architecture, cities, and the public space in creative ways. Tanya is a passionate advocate for the public space, and as the president of the Public Space Advocacy Committee in Melbourne, Citizens for Melbourne, Tanya led the successful Our City, Our Square campaign, and that's the one that opposed the demolition of Federation Square's Yarra building and its replacement with an Apple store, which was damn right. <laughs> um, finally, I have the pleasure of introducing Heinz. So Heinz work with me, works with me at Woods Baggett, but he is an urban leader and strategic thinker first. He's got a focus on 21st century city. Um, sorry, he focuses on the 21st century city as a proving ground for urban adaptation, community resilience, and social equity. He leads the urban design discipline at Woods Baggett Australia and is a committee member for the Urban Design Forum. Graduating with a Master's of Science in Architecture and Urban Design from Columbia University in New York, he is based in Melbourne. Holy moly. Working, working on both Australian and global projects. Heinz has been an adjunct professor and lecturer at Swinburne University of Technology and the University of Melbourne, as well as a guest critic. I don't know what a guest critic is, but it wasn't a breast critic, so that's good. 
Um, <laughs> uh, for architecture and urban design studies at Columbia, Melbourne, RMIT, Monash, Miami, and IIT. So without further ado, I am going to hand over to Heinz. Thank you, Tess. I know that must have been uh, a bit nerve-wracking, but you you, dove, you dovetailed into it. Lovely. Um, so um, I won't talk um, and belabor the point. I think we, we kind of know um, how amazing our panel is, and I, I'm really keen to get into the conversation. But um, I just wanted to give a little bit, bit of a framing of why we're here and what we, why we think this um, is an important topic to address. Um, so it's, and I'm going to read. Um, so as humans, we gauge our cities through the lens of the neighborhood. It's our frame of reference. It's where we begin and end our day. It's where we run to the shops, bump into familiar faces, celebrate our milestones and the places we protect if required. But how do we gain agency in how our local communities are shaped? Do we feel it is a futile effort or do we feel we are not up to the task or by the time change is apparent, the time has passed to weigh in? Historically, the scale, name, and distribution of our cities has been shaped by a top-down uh, singular process, often carried out by the priv privileged white male archetype. Um, and this goes, you know, this is a, is a, is a Western kind of um, phenomenon. Now's the time to recenter the community back into civic. How do we foster processes that enable community voice to better shape their place? And use engagement not as a risk management tool, but as a way to realize better design potential. We have to accept that this means a switch to co-creation and agency among communities. And how do we expand the role of the designer to entrepreneur, translator, steward in a place? So that's my little spiel. Um, I'll stop talking now. Um, I'm really you know, excited and keen to hear from this group. Um, and I'm hoping to learn a lot from this discussion and to bring that, that knowledge to a wider audience. Um, so with, without further ado, I might just ask the first question. Um, uh, so what does civic engagement or participation uh, mean to you? And I might, I might put Tanya on the spot for this one first. Um, You're next to me. Is this working? Yes, it is. Uh, for me and kind of, I suppose, in the work I do, all the things I think about, um, I'm really interested in kind of informal uh, participatory practices that might lead to democratic participation because I think it's an, a kind of a civic participation is a very, uh, it's the foundation for how we might participate in broader ways and it also gives us a kind of a platform for which to build our voice um, and I'm really interested in helping other people to do that as well. I don't know, is that, a, is that an answer? Did I miss things? I mean, I, I'm, I'm keen to, um, I, I, guess, I guess I'm keen to hear from a couple others as well on this. Um, maybe Nairan or Amy or feel free to weigh in. Because I think it means different things to different people. Um, so it's kind of setting the premise. Um, I'm happy to weigh in. <laughs> um, for me, it's about um, providing opportunities for the people and the more than human aspects of our city to play an active role in contributing to shaping the places that they live and inhabit and experience. So, uh, yeah, I was trying to think what's the simplest thing it comes down to and I think, for me, that's it. 
Hi. <laughs> For me, building as a leader, building a relation with people, and after that, bringing the people around and build them in the community. Because I'm dealing with asylum seeker more than you know, Australian. That's my duty to let them stand up and talk. And after that, we give them the opportunity in the community to work. With the flavor of Syria, when I started, they come to me, they shake, they cannot speak, they're afraid from Australian. Because the way they came and the way they, they've been treated from camp to coming to the community, they need someone to encourage them, to give them push. They can speak English, but the fear, I cannot work, I cannot do. Gathering information about this thing, it's so hard because every person in visual. I cannot say me same as this person. That they come to me, they have the fear, the community need more people to stand. And they are inside Australia, they need to be having job and having opportunity. The community around me now, most Australian, but I'm introducing like asylum seeker to Australian and Australian, and they love each other, I don't have an issue. And you, you came to my cafe and see. <laughs> do you feel like you're almost a, um, almost a conduit or a, 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 a kind of um, uh, a, a filter between, um, you know, engaging those groups and, and, and people that have been here longer and, yeah. and trying to... Yeah. yeah, because I start to be inside. I didn't feel Australia, not my country. From the camp, I started to be interpreter, being with the officer, helping them. And people, they come, I have three languages, I can help. That from that day I helped, you know, I feel they need my help. I, I, I become the voice of them in the Medicare, in the spot they cannot talk for their children, for themselves. When I came here, mainland, I start with asylum seeker, but asylum seeker, they have interpreter. They don't engage with people. Interpreter, whatever you say, they should say, no, I'm the voice. I will take the idea and give it to the community. They are good. They are human beings. They are working. They are like a horse. If you see horse... They work as a horse. Really, like the, the girl or the boy, they come to me in the cafe. They don't want to go home. They feel home in the cafe. And when you come, you see the smile on their face. The first day, shaking. Sometimes they, they leave the tray and they come to the kitchen. What you did? Bring it. It's not home. And like this, I train them till they stand on their foot. Before that, I was swimming with them. Before that, I did a lot with them. But this, I, we become family. I become the voice of this community. I mean, it kind of make, it, it makes me think, I think that, um, and that's why I think it's important to hear from multiple voices for that first question is, um, so, it, it, there might be a, um, a level of, um, of complacence or uh, uh, where you almost take for granted or um, it's implicit that you believe that maybe there'll be good outcomes where engagement and your voice or agency in a community might be taken for granted where... Whereas people um, potentially that haven't had that historically are coming here and, and realizing for how myself or it is. people from yourself and other and others. For that myself, are, you, know. you know, my voice wasn't here. I become interfaith leader. I had 170 leader of the wet with me, and I start to raise up my my voice, the voice that from people, you know, people they have their voice, but individual. When we be gather. As a human being, we have bigger voice. The bigger voice for a better life. You know, for example, collecting rubbish from, from gardens, 
We did it as community. Like, for example, before I opened the business, I helped people to stand on their foot, do their business. They don't know anything about the even the allergy. They don't know what allergy is because they don't have it in their country. For that, all this come with a study and know how to study and go in university and how, oh, I don't have English, I cannot. Yes, your English, you know, yes and no, I will help you. Bring your booklet, assessment, I will help you. Yeah. Just come. So it's that, almost equipping know, them. Encouragement more. Equipping them with the tools to, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, um, I mean, I guess, I guess that goes to the, the, the question of what are the... What are the challenges you see with, you know, civic participation? I might, I might pose that question to, to Samantha over there. Because um, obviously, um, I think, you, you know, you've worked in, in both, you know, the U.S. and, and Australia. And so understanding the differences and in, in, in how um, some of the challenges are here versus, versus abroad. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, I mean, the challenges come down to, um, I guess, where your uh, personal resources or education or your access to knowledge comes from. Um, I've worked both in uh, more disadvantaged municipalities um, of Melbourne and then in in the US and and um, where where you've got English as a second language and other many many barriers that um, even getting anyone to turn up to a community engagement session would be um, uh, you know extremely difficult. Um, but I found that in those areas where you have um, communities that are, are resource poor, um, socially disadvantaged, that you have to work a lot harder. But then there's almost this incredible um, buy-in and participation that I haven't seen in other more affluent, privileged communities where that is taken for granted. And so um, when I worked for the city of Hume, which was based in Broadmeadows, I worked a lot with the Syrian and Turkish community um, about just improvements to their public spaces. And they couldn't believe that we were actually engaging with them to ask them about how to improve their place. And, um, you know, I guess traditionally um, a lot of these communities that come from um, as refugees, they 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 are um, are coming from dictatorships and and don't trust government. So, getting a letter in the mail that's even in Turkish or Arabic <laughs> to come along to a community engagement session might not cut it. So, um, you have to work really hard. You have to work really hard. And the way I kind of got around um, working with the communities there was to literally go to to the stores, to the mosque, to follow people around with an interpreter. And, I, you know, I, uh, coming from a cultural background myself, I just knew that I had to have food there and I needed to make it really accessible and really visual um, about how people would like to improve their place. And um, I guess having also uh, working in... Um, having colleagues and things who who have networks in the community and I really... I went to the leader of the mosque and the interfaith network and I got people to really show up um, and, and it was one of the most, um, I guess, um, career highlights for me to come and see people being able to, to discuss ideas in their own language, which I hadn't ever done before. I'd been doing really normal community co-design charrettes where you just kind of come up with ideas. And so that was really powerful. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then you have the flip side where you work, um, work can be a little bit, um, uh, uh, you can get bogged down in a lot of red tape and um, a lot of our engagement can come a bit top down and so you have a bit of distrust and apathy from communities who are kind of um, 
you know, feel like what what you're going to do to, to kind of talk to them isn't really going to get um, implemented. And so, you know, there's a big broad spectrum um, depending on your access and resources to um, – um, in terms of, you know, it's really hard to, to, to separate the politics and income from a place and, and how you you engage in that place, I think. And, so it's, and you have to think very broadly about that before you go and do any um, civic engagement in, a, in any neighbourhood. Tanya? Yeah, I was just going to say that I think this facilitation aspect is really important when you build community and it doesn't matter how you do it kind of internal to council or externally as an advocate. I think often people um, see these problems ahead of them as so huge and they don't know where to start, right? Like, so they don't know how to begin to find their voice or they don't know how to use, you know, what they have to say in a way um, that gets to the right people. And so I think this is a really interesting kind of thing to think about. I run these talks for Open House Melbourne. They're called Making Home. They're about social and affordable housing, and that problem is huge in Australia. Like, it's, it's the scale of the issue in Victoria is vast at the moment, and COVID has exacerbated it. And at the end of the talks, because it can fit... Well, it's wonderful to see the good work that people are doing in it, but, you know, as, as an audience member, you can feel really disheartened about um, your capacity to make any change in that huge problem. And so at the end of the talks, I always say, okay, here are the ways you can act. Here are the things you can connect to. If you have, you know, the will, here are some great people to talk to, you know, um, email your MPs. And so this kind of, even just the small, that small level of action, I think, I think you would be surprised. Um, people often don't act because they're worried about it. But um, when you do act, you can actually make quite a big difference and it's the connect collective voice as well because you're adding your voice to other people's and it amplifies the issue. Give them way yes. because you're not, they don't, imagine you come to my country, you cannot speak Arabic. How you deal with it? It's so hard to go some country, you know, especially if they come to the camp one year or six year and after that, what I do, they, don't, they hate me, they don't like me, they judge me, what I wear, what I do, I'm not the same culture, even the children in school, you know. My daughter, when we came, she was eight, now she's Australian. I don't feel she's not. But other people who came six year in camp and the way, the way they, they clothe, you know, the way they, they, they go outside, how they talk, it's totally different. The family, you know, some people, they are ashamed from their family. That all, like, make distance between Australian and the generation, the new generation. For that, I give them, give a chance. Even, like, when I was, like, I had a speech in um, a lot of organization, one of them, Centrelink, with the officer. Give a chance to people to talk, you know, smile, just a smile for them. They don't understand what you say, but when you smile, you give chance that person to smile to you and it get back to talk and the voice will grow, you know, because the fear, our fear, sometimes even Australian, they have fear. When I was teaching Vikuni leadership, they told me the fear, we cannot step, we cannot step, especially after COVID, you know, people start to be having, oh, I don't know if I like this subject or I, I don't know if I study it or I, I don't know what I do in my life, you know? Why I study? Yeah. That, that's what's happened, you know? It, I mean, it kind of leads to the point of, um, you know, what's, what is a successfully driven or community-driven um, process that you guys have been part of? Um, 
And I think maybe, um, you know, uh, Tanya, I know that, you know, there's, there's projects that you've worked on. Um, maybe Amy or, or Ash um, could weigh in. But, you know, what's something that has been successful and, and um, what do you think made it so, so effective? Like what, what in the process? Surely there's just so many you can't count. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess also I'm struggling with successful <laughs> because even the ones that worked well, I'm learning from them and wanting to do them differently the next time. So... <laughs> well, um, and, and we worked on one that had a, a component of it was successful, whereas the, there was a battle won, but the, probably the war was lost. Was lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of the the tactics and the strategy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the project that I guess I'd like to share is um, one where we were working with a um, a not for profit organisation called KVB. They run a stationers program where they act as an intermediary between the local community who want to um, look after the gardens of the nearby train station um, and the um, metro uh, trains and VicTrack where it's um, those spaces they're working in have a lot of underground facilities and lots of com complexity to them. Um, and um, for me, that was a really helpful model because not only can a community express an interest in something they want to do, but they have a direct connection to the people they need to talk to to have permission to act. <laughs> um, and Was I think... How, did they, how were they made aware of that entity or that uh, um, conduit? Yeah, um, so I wasn't involved in setting it up, but we did tap into that model for, um, they were interested in setting up a urban biodiversity program um, with uh, a bit more of an emphasis on local biodiversity and how to support it through their, their plantings. Um, and uh, I guess it's also that collective voice because what they were able to do is they had 28 stationers groups and they could send out a call and say, which of you are really interested in this particular um, you know, project? And, and get volunteers that way. Um, and I think also because it's 28 different groups and growing, it, it, um, you can actually demonstrate that this is a really important model we should be paying attention to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, Tanya, I'd be, I'd be curious to hear the, that old chestnut about how you battled big old Apple out of um, Fed Square. How did that start and how did it gain traction? And So, um, strangely enough, when the Liberal state government was in power, there was an expression of interest out um, to uh, deck Fed Square East. So, deck the rail lines to the east of Fed Square. The expression of interest um, didn't have 
a kind of a governing body that would run that public space afterwards. So I wrote an article for Architecture Australia and then when the Apple Store was announced, and we kind of knew it was going to happen a year before, but everybody just went, that is absurd, that will never happen. And then it was announced five working days before Christmas, 2017. Um, Architecture Australia called me and said, could you write something? And I said, oh my God, it's five days before Christmas and my whole family's coming. Uh, and then I woke up the next morning and I was so angry. I said, okay, I can do it. I mean, you'll have it by the end of the day. So I wrote something. And I think it ended with me, I'm going to chain myself to the bollards, you know, in front of the construction truck or something like that, right? Which was stupid, right? Because then I had to put my money where my mouth was. <laughs> Thank God I didn't have to do that. That would have made an idiot. Although I did do some pretty stupid stuff. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so I, we, we kind of formed a group around it. They said, oh, look, we need a president to form an association. I'm like, they like, well, let's have a lady. I'm like, okay, fine. I didn't know what I was getting into. So I became the spokesperson for this group, the Citizens for Melbourne. And what we did is we built, I suppose, a conversation around what public space is and what public space means. Um, and it's complicated because it means different things in different places. That public space in America is very different to public space in China, very different to public space in Australia. Um, Fed Square is also one of those things like, you know, people will battle for their local pub, but Fed Square was kind of everybody's but nobody's. So we thought, you know, like, we can do this. Uh, it took a long time, but we kind of built that public voice and we built that list. I mean, we started off with two petitions that had about 50,000 signatures on them. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to participate. Um, so we had to build the list and we eventually kind of ended up creating this, this list of people. We gave them ways to have voice through our social media channels and we wrote articles and we gave tours and we talked about public space everywhere we possibly could. Um, and we built the list to a point that when, um, that when the, uh, the company that man manages Fed Square, or the, you know, Fed Square Management Corporation, whatever they're called now, I can't even remember, um, put in uh, a permit to demolish the Yarra building and replace it with an Apple store, we could solicit through our mailing list 2,300 objections to that permit to Heritage Victoria. Um, and we also kind of got on, we got onto all of our networks and we uh, helped enable at least 800 more. So I think they got over 3,000 submissions. I think it was the most objections <laughs> Heritage Victoria had ever seen. And so they refused the permit. And because the, re the permit was refused, the apple pulled out. Um, and we won, woohoo! Um, but what that really showed me was... Um, you know, that building community takes a lot of time uh, and, and that having complex conversations about the places that we live is really important because there's not many places we can do that um, and there's not many ways you can have voice in that process. Um, so for me, it's really important to go out and participate. Like I always love getting onto the community consultation in my local area, just saying. I'm probably really annoying. Um. <laughs> but, but I think what's interesting is that, like you said, it's kind of, it was everybody's but nobody's space. So if, 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 that's, um, if that mechanism or that is possible in a place like that, I feel like there's probably more, um, uh, uh, I guess, goodwill or momentum you could build up in a, a more clear local community um, for people. Whereas in the city, like you said, it, it's, it's sort of everybody's but nobody's. Um, 
Yeah, it's it, it's that's a really interesting one. And I think you could go down a wormhole into um, the public space story and who it belongs to in Australia versus other places. Um, I might um, I might just directly and and you you can guess who this question is going to be for, um, but. How do you balance your personal voice as an artist with the potential public benefit of your work, Ash? <laughs> Thanks. Sorry for I'm not answering that last question. No, no, no. I might answer the last question and this one. I did, I did just have to let it come to me. To what, what is the best, I guess, uh, community-based project relative to this discussion and architecture and thinking and I was um, I was invited late uh, late 2020 end of sort of that first wave um, early 2021 into a meeting in the city uh, with about 16 architecture firms to go to a, a an abandoned not an abandoned building a building that was going to be demolished for new high-rise high architecture um, uh, by an uh, organisation called Finding Infinity and they did a project called A New Normal uh, which was basically 16 architecture firms all presenting projects about future sustainability in terms of um, where the city needs to go, cities need to go in terms of the future and uh, sustainability. Uh, I was kind of invited in as a creative person at the last minute just to kind of scope this building and I guess for me it was nice to be able to be invited in, shown uh, this rooftop space and asked if I wanted to create a mural that was connected to something much bigger than just my work I think. Um, so I created a large scale mural that was above an array of solar. Um, that was a structure built by John Wardle Architecture. And Matthew Van Coy from uh, that architecture company sort of drove, like brought me in on, on their project and said, we really want this. And it was a low-funded project and they were able to get paint support and it was a low fee, but it was great to be part of the, the project and just be part of something bigger when my, my work is basically, you know, abstraction, it's, you know, people, some people enjoy it a lot, some people kind of don't, especially if council funds are used to make the work. Um, but uh, it was nice to be sort of, have, have a strong work, but be in the background to something much more important and a lot of discussion going on there, I guess. I mean, I think, I, I actually think, um I think you're selling yourself short because I think you actually have some amazing work that changes the nature of space inherently. Like I think your your work in in Chinatown um, was actually really interesting, just how it actually transformed as well um, a space that probably felt um, like a forgotten leftover corner. And and I think the way that um, that I guess there's a there's a big conversation I think for how art can kind of transform spaces. And and I think I, I think that was kind of an amazing one as well. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think Can I, that, yeah. Sorry, I just want to add to that. A little fangirl moment. <laughs> I think um, my first experience of your work was at the NGV for the, um, oh, what is it, a Melbourne Beer, the first... Melbourne Now. Melbourne Now. Ago, yep. And I think there's a wonderful participatory kind of 
um, like that, well, that for me was participatory, right? Even though you weren't there, it was just the video of you making the work. And I've also seen your work at the Lawn Sculpture Biennale. And there's that level of, um, I suppose, allowing people to, to see how you make what you make that is really beautiful and engaging. And I think that's, you know, that's a level of participation and, and whatever that's, that's just fantastic. Sure. Yeah, look, there are, there are works that I do that are just simply abstraction and just painting in a place. And then there are conceptual ones that are located to site and talking about place. Uh, you mentioned you worked in Hume. I, I do projects every year or two just for myself. Um, I guess outside of commissions that pay for what I do. Um, and so there was a, a very large tilt slab building on the side of the freeway up near um, Craigieburn in Hume. And uh, apart from, I guess, uh, just wanting to paint and experiment with, with a new palette and approach, like it was about kind of uh, changing the perception of these large sort of tilt slab uh, inv uh, industrial environments on the edge of, edges of our city. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think, um, I guess, uh, another question that might be a, 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 might give a set of tools or help people understand, what, what would you think is the easiest way? And, and I know that, I guess, from, from the, ex the, the previous conversations, we know it's not, inherently easy, but what's the easiest way that someone can maybe start to participate in their community? I might pose that to Samantha. Um, like Tanya said, like going onto your council page is always a good start. It's, uh, for those who like have low, like haven't really started with their own local, I think it's a good place to start just to know what's going on in your neighbourhood um, and see once you become aware of what's going on in your own local, like then you have more, I guess, purpose or drive to participate in other ways. Um, so for me personally, my whole journey to this practice and field was realising that people actually, there's planned neighbourhoods and like everything is by design. I didn't realise that until I started looking at my career, <laughs> career opportunities um, during high school, right? And so when I realised how great my neighbourhood was and how walkable it was and how transport was close, I started to realise, oh, it's all planned and, you know, a lot of other places don't get this, um, this kind of blueprint. So, you know, it started for me in my own local and getting interested. So I guess council pages, um, even like there's also resources out there that people may not know about, like the Neighbourhood Project that Co-Design started, uh, town teams, um, there's a, the Better Block in the US that actually coming here or are here soon, um, about how to just um, get your neighbours together and, and do stuff to fix parts of your neighbourhood. Um, usually a good place to start is to see who owns the land. <laughs> Just this is my council hat on. Um, we, you know, you often hear people wanting to do stuff and it's, you know, privately owned land. So a good place to start is, is sometimes publicly owned land that then you can approach your council and, and find out what you can do. I mean, in kind of building off that, like, do you, how would you say that, um, you know, citizen engagement or, or civic engagement, um, which leads to, to, to positive urban change, how might that um, 
differ in Australia compared to, to sort of international or global contexts that you've worked? Because I think that's a really, that's been an interesting insight. I think um, Tanya Neran, like I think there's multiple people that could, could touch on that, but how does it differ here? Because I think it, it, there's probably a, a process. It's a, it's a process difference and, and driven opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, immediately after coming back from living in the States, I lived in Chicago for a couple of years um, and I noticed that like the local playground, local garden beds, um, so much more posters and petitions in the neighbourhood to get people out to like fundraise and be part of working groups and and I thought, why, why isn't count, the council doing that stuff? Um, and you just see people come out for, yeah, working bees and doing stuff. And it was just so much more apparent to me that participation was not uh, an option. People just really band together and do stuff. And I tried to, tried to understand why. And obviously, over there, there's a culture of enablement. Like, people um, learn to... Uh, get, you know, just participate from a young age. I think, like, the volunteerism and, um, you know, the involvement that I think you have from school to, to high school and university is just uh, much more apparent there. There's also less government. So, in, like, a city like Chicago, over 9 million people, there's one council. And I worked for one of the local business improvement districts and I realised that, that there was never going to be anyone... Um, putting money into improving the local park or neighbourhood. There's just never going to be enough people at the city of Chicago sitting downtown to look at that local park. So the community would get together to, to make it happen and fundraise. Um, here, we have a lot more government. We have a lot more budget. We have a lot more money. We collect a lot more taxes. So we're just coming from a very different, I guess, um, foundation to begin with but I missed I, I really I noticed that there isn't as much of a culture of enablement here and there's so much more red tape and you know even going and doing something in your local me median is not allowed <laughs> you know what I'm like why why well, I mean <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to stop people putting veggie gardens in their median same. And oh my lord like, which the same area you want to and, and Marbonog, don't worry what? I say it aloud because I had big fight with her I put big, I, I'm a gardener that was the thing you know and I'm, say sorry later. I'm, I'm friends with them but I did garden front of, and they come I was in the cafe I get back where's my veggie they took it I went I think, to the council, I know the mayor, yes, and I know, know the mayor. So, okay, but even, with my vigil, five kilo from you, five kilo from you, you should <laughs> buy and give me. And they were laughing, you know. I know the rule that they don't allow it because the watering and everything should be inside your home, not outside. But I'm encouraging the neighborhood in Braybrook to do something outside, putting flowers, putting something. They come and take everything. So maybe it's, but, it's, like, yeah. it's almost emblematic then of like, I'm if, doing if, the if, you're being stopped, <laughs> if you're being stopped at that point, then, yeah. then why would you go why further? Would you go? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a revolution that... Yeah, this your friends. Be inside. Don't yeah. go outside. Oh, and your your <laughs> issue. I'm naughty. I go outside. <laughs> I to encourage people. To encourage people. people to do it, you know, because some people really they inside the house. They don't put light on. They don't move. You know, when they see oh, it's a beautiful veggie, I will go and grab one capsicum from outside. But then they will go out a bit. You know, I don't need that veggie because I'm in the cafe. But I water them every day. 
So that's that the need of people, you know. It's it's good. And our area not that rich area like St. Kilda. I'm in St. Kilda, you know, my my shop there. And I'm encouraging people for gardening. I tell them school holiday, bring your children, we'll do some gardening here on table and you take your flower. That that's a good idea. You see, come out and do something. It's good with the community. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think yeah, I, again, I think that's um if you're being stopped at that point, then you know, how do you gain a coalition or a, a voice or imagine to have a voice oh. with, with when it comes to say um, you know a new train station or a, a, a building or a precinct or a and I guess that um, kind of takes me to the next the next question which is it's kind of relating this conversation to people that shape the built environment um, so I think it's, it's more about what tactics or mechanisms are available to designers um, within this conversation because I think you know, um, there's there's uh, gathering community voice and kind of stopping things from happening or saying maybe um, think something shouldn't happen. But I think it's also the question of when change is inevitable. How do you channel that change, or how do you um, how do you how does it become a reflection of the community rather than a um, an imposition? Um, I'll jump in. <laughs> um, a lot of my work is actually um, less at the community level and more with uh, within organisations that would like to enable more community participation and better outcomes. Um, and for me, um, I guess some of the important things that I look for are um, asking questions and listening to the answers. <laughs> um, because that's really rich information for how do you actually frame your next step. Um, and uh, I guess the other thing I was thinking about when we talk about it takes a village. Um, so some of the, I work with a lot of local um, councils and um, the project officers I work with are really committed to what they're trying to achieve. And many of them have actually worked out how to navigate through and across the structures. And it's just so important to find those people who understand um, and, and can act as an ally and uh, <laughs> help guide you through that process. Um, yeah. You think, I mean, I think one of the things that, um, that I picked up on in, in, you know, in my work and just, and obviously working here and comparing with other places is um, the point at which communities are being asked to have a say, it's sometimes to the point where their input is, is either tokenistic or kind of icing on what it's already... It's not about questioning the premise or, the, or, or what's... Do you think that that's, um, that would require... You know, how, how, do you, how do you have those earlier conversations? How do you... Um, you know, I think that's, that's kind of a big one, for, a question for me, I guess. Yeah, um, and I think we have a legacy of that tokenistic, you can have a say, but we're just going to do what we, we're planning. <laughs> um, and it's really hard to overcome that. So um, it's really important um, when you're setting up a participatory um, event or asking for input that you actually provide a reflection back of what you learnt and an explanation of how it may or may not have been brought into... Um, the final outcome. Um, 
just from a design perspective, I think that we're often really scared of what the community is going to say, and any community, you know, like it could be um, First Peoples or it could be like just the broader community. We're scared that, you know, like our designs are going to have to change or something's, you know, like that it's going to add to the time frame or put a spanner in the works. And, and this is why we leave it too late and it becomes tokenistic. But I think if you engage early and it's really genuine, like there's incredible opportunity in that because that gives you a mandate to do the work that you need to do. So, for example, um, me talking to my local... Well, community consultation with my local council, that's online. They're building a new playground uh, on the foreshore near Point Ormond. I don't know if anybody knows Point Ormond. It's a little hill with the little weird white um, timber thing on the top of it down in Elwood. And... Um, and so I put in, I said, you know, this is a great opportunity to use the design of this playground to really amplify the identity of the place that we live in, right? And so then we walk past it and nothing's happening and then finally it's under construction and there's all these little colourful Point Ormond like timber things with slides and I'm just going to take that as a win. That's me giving the designer at council the mandate to design something more fun than they would have before. I don't really know if that was my win but I'm going to claim it, right? So, you know, I think there's an incredible opportunity there to kind of take that and then say, no, this is what the community said, this is what they wanted. And if we do that early enough, like, it's meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree. And I think also, there's also, it's like, there's also projects that, like, really appeal to engage, like, playgrounds, parks, those kind of projects are really good, easy ways to build trust and um, connect with community because it, like, you know, as soon as you kind of, build connection, belonging, you know, people will see their reflection of themselves in their place and they see their fingerprints in a place. They're more willing to continue to, um, well, stay, spend time in the neighbourhood, spend in their local neighbourhood, all of that stuff's good stuff yeah. that you want. The more complex projects is where I think it's just so hard on both ends for the, for, for the community, for businesses and for you know, the design designers, um, that's really challenging. I don't think anyone's seen like a, you know, silver bullet yet. And given Melbourne and our city is constantly under change with huge infrastructure investments and it's just like, <laughs> have you say again? Like on what? Like it's just like you're – I think there's a lot of fatigue in the community. That's why you, we're, we're, you're seeing people kind of – you know, not engaging in ways that you want and then, you know, just like from the experts and designers are sort of chasing their tails a bit and I think sometimes it is just good to review, I guess, once councils are doing their budgeting or when a big design um, project might be going, getting off the ground, like, for example, NGV Contemporary, is to just make sure, like, where are those little low-hanging fruit projects that people can be involved with whilst the biggest stuff is happening because yeah. we know that the biggest stuff is going to happen and they might not be able to be involved in the way that you want. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, anecdotally, I think, I mean, I use this phrase a lot, but necessity is the mother of all invention. And I think um, in some of the work I've done in the States and um, in Memphis, uh, there was a lot of uh, kind of deep, um, you know, 
inequity, disinvestment. There was, um, you know, you, you could see racism built into the blocks of the city if you actually studied it. And I think um, some of the work we did there along, along the riverfront of the city um, is emblematic of some of the work happening in a lot of US cities where um, cities are turning back to their, their natural amenities and that's creating investment. But I think it's also creating these really tough conversations of who does that belong to? It's also forcing cities to look at um, uh, who they're actually um, putting up on a pedestal uh, physically, so their monuments. Um, Memphis was dealing with a history of, of, um, of racism, um, and as, as was a lot of the South and even, even the Northern areas. And um, what the city was able to do through a lot of work and, and engagement was to create a nonprofit overnight, um, buy two of the parks that had Confederate monuments in them, and take down the monuments overnight before there was... So in some ways, it was actually... Um, it was actually undercutting or avoiding some of the tougher conversations that were happening. Um, and it was rare. It was interesting that government did that on their own. But I think what it enabled was um, the kind of apologize rather than ask permission. And, and it, it opened up a lot of different um, uh, opportunities for design and then investment as a result of that. And I think that's the, that's the big question is like, I think what we've been talking about are some, in some ways, um, smaller projects, but I think smaller projects lead to bigger projects. And I think if, you get community buy-in on small things. Um, oftentimes, um, you know, the ground plane and the public realm is what what actually drives and, and attracts um, the larger investment in an area. And I think, um, yeah, to me, that's it, it's it's the start of that conversation in a way. So I think I might um, give our panel a break, and maybe um, I think we're at that point where we can maybe. Uh, pass it to the audience um, for questions, comments. Um, uh, yeah. Not shy in taking a microphone. Um, hi, I'm Catherine. I want to pick up on a slip of your tongue, Samantha. You actually made a... Uh, you were talking about broad engagement but you actually slipped the tongue and said fraud engagement, which I think is fabulous because <laughs> it actually is fundamental. I live in um, the St Kilda Road area um, and it's impossible to build a village when you've got developments that are, are basically vertical and doesn't matter which council. Yes, it is City of Port Phillip. Um, but we ended up in VCAT over a particular matter. That's not important. The interesting thing was going back through freedom of information, etc. And what I would say that is in common with the um, Naran story is that people feel like, my God, when do you get heard? The fraud element of being um, putting forward good constructive conversation, wanting to build a village... And, yeah, it's hard when you think a village is sort of, you know, what we all think of a village. Those are not the real city in terms of the inner urban. And so my question is how do you actually get um, engagement from a group that doesn't actually even know they exist? We actually built a bit off the sort of Tanya story. We actually ended up building a little bit of a community. But that's not sustainable unless you've got something that is actually being heard. We were dismissed 
um, worse than that, but I, that's, a pers- that's a particular story. I think your slip of the tongue is well worth exploring, is that trust in engagement, whether it's early, late, um, the outcomes, done a lot of it myself in a different world, fraud, broad. No, thank you. I <laughs> um, yes, I I completely sympathise, and and it is it's it's challenging, and it's also too much for one person to be carrying. You know, the voice and um, yeah, vertical communities are super challenging, and you do feel anonymous, and it's it's. Um, it's, it is challenging um, given the scale and, like, we talk a lot in the urban design and, I guess, uh, uh, profession about scale and how even all of those – the scale scale and how that impacts sense of community and belonging. Um, so, I don't have an answer but I, you know, I, I, we, we see it and I've seen it in, in consultations that I've done with developers who were starting to get a little bit more serious about – understanding how to build community in some of these high rises and what like what what a building manager's job should be and like different models around owners uh sorry uh building management and owners corp and and you know when we lived in chicago we had this amazing building manager who actually because it was also social housing in it which there was only maybe two percent of the 80 apartments were social housing but the building manager was a community manager and she put on all these things to build community in our building. And it was and it was a new building, so everyone who, who moved in at the same time got to know each other. She you know, they had functions on and, and I just I'd never felt that before. And I'd lived in a brand new luxury apartment in South Yarra and nothing none of that happened. <laughs> and I paid we paid so much money to live there. And I just it was so palpable the difference. That's yeah. And, I think it takes I think yeah. it takes a rallying point too to 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 create that necessity, and I think it's kind of like what what does a um, but it also takes the question of when 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 there isn't that rallying point, is there is there a community there to to, you know it's like wartime versus peacetime. How do you create that coalition um, when things are good, um, so that when things are bad you can actually have um, you know, a, a, a group of people that are already ready. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Carlos. Uh, I had a question, I think it's open for anybody in the panel, that about how do we, especially right now when we're having a crisis of people looking for places to live in, in, in all Australia, but especially in, in Sydney and Melbourne, as the biggest cities, how do we open um, participation for people that are not yet part of the community, but that naturally existing communities need to make a space for. And and I, I want to know if you have experiences about this or any ways to go about it so that those voices are also heard even though they're not yet there. I came in newly <laughs> for that, you know. Um, to build the relation with your area and local people, you start to befriend. I started with Facebook. Started with the local community and being friend, gather them, do some function for me. 
and I start to ask questions what I need from this, you know, because when I came, I have no visa, I have no opportunity, I have no money. For that, you know, I knock the door one by one. I start to find some people around me, the neighbor, I start with the neighbor around me, and they help me to find the sec second step. They have a friend, they find a small room, and after that, bigger and bigger and bigger, and we become group as local. Because when I came from the camp, they put me in sunshine, and we walk, we don't have mobile. We walk to find in the area, for that I live in that house now, 11 years, I didn't move in Braybrook. So I didn't have enough money to move another house. But the local was beautiful with me, you know? My job now is in St. Kilda, and I live in sometimes one hour and a half. But as a local, you know, both sides, they love me. For that, what happened? The trust. The local, they will help you to find it. I promise you, next time when you come, you tell me, I bought a house, the local bought me house. Because really the trust and the friendship, you know, I have a lot of issue in, in, when I start business in Australia as a caterer and after that cafe. But people, they give me the strength. They come and they're, we are with you. And I close down and they open me. 300 people sent to local, you know, council. She should open because that's the love of people and the trust. For that start from go to your local area, Facebook, Instagram, like someone, be friend, you know, if you drink beer, go to your spot and drink beer with someone and you will find a friend and Australians good heart, you know, good heart. And I live, live in many countries, this country the best and Melbourne special, they are beautiful. Um, I actually just think uh, it was a question you asked earlier about like, you know, what's the, was it the low bar or something to, like what's the low hanging fruit to participation? And I think for me, like what got me into different things is just volunteer your time for something you love, right? Because what you'll do is you will find your people. <laughs> you might not get along with them all the time because <laughs> they'll be passionate too and that leads to interesting things. Um, but, you know, like, you know, you, you kind of find a community around, around that. And so kind of just work out what you love and how you can volunteer Sometimes in, some, yeah. sometime in the volunteer, they're Australian and they don't aim to help. Because I have this when I went to Braybrook Hub and the neighborhood, I was teaching cooking for elderly. They don't want to be friend. They don't want to be friend. They want to do the cooking and bye-bye. We eat and we go. They don't talk. For that, I start to do dance with them. I, I want to teach them how to open your iPad as elderly. Come say hi in Arabic. Something interesting to like, you know, like, Sometimes volunteering for me because I'm the best volunteer. I did a lot of volunteering. <laughs> but that's sometimes, you know, but volunteering is something that if you find your own group, it's great. Yeah, good idea. Hi, I wanted to um, go back to the previous sort of topic um, around adversary and how that um, can sometimes actually generate a really interesting conversation like Tanya's example um, but also your example of being able to actually bring people together and I think in Australia because we do have that community versus government sentiment that you know was generated you know 200 years ago um, and so we, we have like a cultural relationship with government that is 
quite often not embraced, as I think a lot of you have talked about here tonight. But that adversary can actually bring us together. And I'm really interested to hear how, you know, it's not necessarily a fight you wanted to instigate, Tanya, but at the same time, it managed to broaden this conversation that we probably needed to have anyway about public space and ownership and and that often um, we can get a little bit um, complacent about our relationship to these things and how sort of each of you have a, a role in that kind of conversation. So I'm, I'm kind of I'm interested in how you see. Um, adversarial kind of the nature of adversary operating within the way that you work and I know it's not necessarily how people might approach uh, a community um, outcome but it can often be something that's actually really beneficial. Well I'm a hilarious person to ask about that because I hate conflict like deeply and passionately. I was going to ask before, I think I've lived in the US as well. I think the difference between maybe us and Americans is that Australians are really polite. I don't know whether that's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're feeling that. So, you know, we don't want to. Um, but public space is kind of something I believed really passionately in. And so I think I thought of it more as advocacy. Um, so because if I thought of it as an adversarial scenario, which, you know, like some people did and some people do and... Some people view me as, but it's kind of hilarious. Um, I couldn't have done it. So I had to think about it as having a conversation about what public space means to us, what public space is in terms of a kind of an, an Australian identity. I'm having conversations down on the beach in St Kilda in a couple of weeks' time about the beach as a public space, those kind of things. Um, you know, so yeah, so it is actually, you know, that public realm is where we all come together or can come together, we don't always come together, but, um, you know, that those kind of public places, it's where we meet people that are different to ourselves. Uh, it's where we can engage with strangers and people we don't know. Um, and those kind of spaces are really important and it's really important that we can do that in as free a way and accessible a way as possible. So for me, those were the kind of principles that, that um, underpin that and that gave me the reason to go talk to people and advocate uh, for Fed Square as a public space that didn't have an Apple store in it. Um, yeah, so I didn't see it as adversarial, I think. Otherwise, I couldn't have done it. Um, yeah, um, I'm quite similar. Try to avoid adversarial um, positions. Um, myself, I'd rather be like an advocate for... Um, the change I want to see in place. But I can see that in some situations it's helpful to have that adversarial voice out there um, um, as like a... In some, in some instances they can actually push us to think, well, we should be looking even further into the future and thinking even bigger than what we're doing and um, it creates a bigger space in between a, a, a desired endpoint and where we might, um, where we currently are. And so there's more room for where we could end up. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, I, there's there's pros and cons of taking different approaches. And uh, but again, maybe that's part of having a village and having some people prepared to take a stand and be a bit more. 
you know, <laughs> adversarial about it, um, just to kind of push the edge a little bit further out for that conversation. G'day guys, I'm a, uh, a citizen of the city of Melbourne and really picking up on some great overlap with everything you've been saying today. <laughs> Wondering, just coming off the back of that question about activism, which generally tends to happen when we're, when something bad is happening, you know, that's when the village brings out the pitchforks, as it were. Um, but then there's kind of this you know, red tape, you know, big ships turn slowly, which is fine if there's not an iceberg. Um, and then there's also that, what we're talking about, say, in the States, where you've got a lot less red tape. Um, in a city that, you know, is still planting plane trees and, you know, and... <laughs> And all of all of those sorts of things. I'm wondering how do we how, how do we how do we how, and this is to everybody really, but how do we bridge that, and how do we move a lot damn quicker in sort of a sense of proactivism rather than because when, when something shit happens, like uh, Apple wants to put up a store, then we go okay, we, we, hang on a minute, and then we kind of we bring bring the pitchforks out. But how do we move from the space where we're kind of like Community consultation is 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 so important and so great, but it's also slow as well. And and I think this is where a lot of commercial interests can move quicker because they've got that. So how how do we how do we get more proactive about our activism in creating um, the city that we all, like the cities that we know should ex already exist? We should be on, and and I think particularly about um, the the pandemic. All of a sudden, everything happened. Like, just shit stopped and things changed. And then, all of a sudden, you can't move on Melbourne's streets again for cars. Like, what? how do we get that kind of activity happening? Big question. I don't, I don't know anything about um, City of Melbourne processes, but I do know that uh, a, a good, an interesting artist uh, and planner... Um, uh, oh my, his name has um, gone past me. Um, but he built a, an amazing playground around the corner here. Um, and On South Bank Boulevard. Yep. What's that? On South Bank Boulevard. Yes. Yep. Um, oh. Matthew? Yeah. Matt, Matt Hew Mike Hewson. That's right. Sorry. Of course. <laughs> I don't know why I've had a blank. I'm sorry. I've... Um, I, yeah, I've been following him on Instagram and he created an amazing playground in Sydney and it looks like it's dangerous, it's chaotic, it's built out of, you know, rocks and uh, all different types of things that look dangerous but it's very challenging and I guess you guys mentioned uh, playgrounds earlier and I just thought that in terms of setting the bar, that's kind of like the most extreme kind of new public planning, bring in an artist to create a playground and a B. Um, it basically brings out the headlines in the news uh, in, an, in a critical or negative way, I guess, and changes perceptions on the way that our cities are and can be. Um, that's, that's something I saw in terms of a positive thing, I think, that's happened. I think it's also kind of the, um, 
I think it's a great example. Um, it's a big, it's a tough question, I think, because, um, you know, you have sort of like philanthropic organizations in America that are often some sitting in between private and public, um, where they're often thinking of public interest, but, um, and, and they're not necessarily beholden to, um, government, government, um, mechanisms or processes. Um, but, but I also think there's kind of the, the conversation about like what, Melbourne, city of Melbourne, as a as a, a lab or as a kind of exemplar um, for projects like that, and how those potentially could um, could spread to other um, councils and and vice versa in some cases where um, there should be exemplars set and and those processes should be learned and shared between those entities. Um, but I think I mean I, th I still think it kind of goes back to that conversation of how what are the the mechanisms during the times where necessity isn't present, that you can actually form those connections and networks that then can be activated during um, uh, adversity. Um, and I think there's probably multiple mechanisms that have been touched on, but, um, and they're probably depending on where you are, they're dependent on geographies, but I, I don't think there's one universal mechanism that, that could happen. I think in city of Melbourne, it's a lot different than say, you know, Dandenong or or Moreland or um or sorry Marybeck or uh Broadmeadows you know there's there's it depends where you are um I think uh, in those times between uh, events um that's probably a good opportunity to really reflect on what are the myth myths that we're buying into and what can we do to kind of explore those and unpack them a little bit more? And um, I, like plane trees, <laughs> um, we know they do well in cities, but um, what else could we expect from our trees? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of myths around what people expect in their parks or their playgrounds or their public spaces that um, they deserve to be thought through a little bit more and and um, prepare some um, material that we can take when, when we do have an opportunity to um, say, no, we want something different. <laughs> yeah. I think there could be, um, like, I, I find that some, you know, the established patterns of engagement that, you know, kind of roll out through council budgeting processes, they're, they're pretty, like, they're pretty, like, similar across, you know, financial year planning and all of that. But there's also, like, you could literally write a letter or come up with an idea, submit your stuff to your local MP or councillor. Even just knowing who your mayor, ward, council mayor is and having a catch-up with that person is a really... Like, they're always really approachable. They'll meet you for coffee. Uh, if there's plane trees or particular street or block you want to talk about they're the ones that can take it to the table. And most a lot of people don't realise how accessible and approachable your local councillor is um, to get those ideas across. You can literally circumvent so much process by just going straight to your councillor. And I work at a particular council that people know that very well and often circumventing all process. Go straight to the, <laughs> straight to the top. Um, but like, 
you know, there are areas around Melbourne where people don't know that, they have no knowledge that that's, they might not even know their email address or number. Um, so, you know, it's a good, good place to start. Can I just add to that too? I think we need to demand more of our politicians. Like, we're really apathetic. We know, well, actually politically worldwide, um, people have become very disengaged. But if we say, look at the change that's happening, um, because Daniel Andrews said that he wants to create treaty um, and is happening very fast. I mean, it, it's still slow, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's fast in terms of a government process. You know, we need to demand champions for the things that we want in politics. Like, absolutely, without a doubt. Like, there is a lot of deadwood in there. And, you know, it's really important who you vote for and what you ask of them. So, yeah, get out and vote. <laughs> Sorry, I have one last question. Um, firstly, thank you, panel, for your insights and conversation. Um, my question sort of follows the, sh the thread of the previous question, where um, often when empathy and care is brought into the design perspective or conversation, um, deep listening and slowness is often thrown out the door in favour for more commercial or money-hungry ventures. How do we look to um, really reinvent this or what methods can we combat this? I mean, I'm not going to say that there's, this isn't necessarily answering that, but I think part of it deals with the time in which that conversation starts in, in the process because there's a set of diminishing returns as you, as you move through it in terms of the ability to, to shape. And so I think part of it is like being more upstream in when those conversations happen so that it's, it gets to the point where you're questioning the, the premise rather than... than the, the curb edge, you know, of, of a project. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, I think that's such a good and beautiful question. I think that, you know, like, we all need to find the time and the space to reflect on, like, what's important to us and what's important in the built environment. I had this beautiful conversation with um, the CEO out at Collingwood Yards who talks about the soft infrastructure needed to create that as a public space and being kind of, you know, pressured by the fact that all of our spaces need to be activated at the moment or Instagrammable or, you know, something, I don't know. And just wanting to take the time to un to, to for her to sit with that space and understand what it was and what it was, what, what it needed and what its community needed so that it actually could become itself, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but so that it could become, you know, like so it could find its personality or its, its, its way of being. And I, so I don't know the answer to your question, but I know that that is important. Um, so sorry, that wasn't so helpful. For me, gal, it, it's a very gal question in a way. It, it, in general, you know, if you think about the project, for me, when, when I was leader in the, in the West, you know, from before COVID, we have leader of the West, and after that, the mayor come to inv like invite everyone to see what's inside the city, you know, because we are a small area, Brimbang and Marbenong, both of them, I was leader there. It's good to have like the mayor there to see what people need because we are the voice of people. 
but that if government or council want to do anything in, in the city, invite the artists, invite everyone that their community inside, the leaders, for example, and have good idea from them. This communicating between politics and people, but that we will see our city would be the most beautiful place because everyone have idea, and this idea maybe not undo, like we cannot do it at all, but the idea is idea, and one day it will become really good. That project for us, you know, something we say, and they think about it. Maybe it's happened or no. But that for cancel, when we are talking about like we are growing tree, I don't see in my area a lot of tree. I put a lot of complaint about light in, inside our park. Because my city, she don't dare after six o'clock in winter to go to the door. But that, you know, one light. And every mayor come, I go, every police come in the area, I go, I speak up, I need light in my area, I need light, in the end we put the light. <laughs> but that's, you know, the, the idea that people bring special artists, you know, the artists, they study a lot, they know what happened there, they know what the people need, you know, something that it's outside. But that for me as a leader, I love to speak up and... I be the voice of people because I hear from people, oh, this park have no light. That park troublemaker there, you know, for that we hear from people, we see people, that we are the voice of people. It's good to gather even monthly, not every day, monthly. And we discuss what we need in the community and the leader will take it to the council, the council, the mayor will take it, the MP, the MP take it to the government and the street will be beautiful, the people happy and the city happy. Yeah, I mean, even like that comment on like, <laughs> it's not that easy, but we make it's it so easy. easy. This, yeah. must be so easy. this must be cathartic for you. Yeah, I think um, I'm positive all the yeah. time. <laughs> we start from here. <laughs> but I think even that comment to art. I mean, I think it's um, it's often kind of a. Uh, I think its purpose can't be understated in terms of it being, and, and sometimes artists are the ones that sort of are those people that are doing the deep listening actually by being in a place the act of creating something and being and actually listening. And, um, but it also, the, the act of doing that shows that um, it is cared for in some way or it is um, acknowledged. And, 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 and that presumably would come from someone you know, giving a shit about the space. And, um, and that's often reflected in, in what art. And it often leads to something else then. Um, so yeah, it's a great, it's a, it, it was a lovely question. And um, I'm hoping we, started to answer it. Um, if we discuss it one month, we'll talk about it. Because it's, um, it's a project about our life, you know? I, I think we're, we're nearly at time, so I, um, I appreciate all the questions, and thank you, everyone, for coming out. We, um, we have... Um, oh, sorry, sorry. I had one question, but... Um, so, um, the conversation of red tape came... Uh, red tape, fear, and immigration came up a lot. Um, and quite often the conversation is Australians and uh, refugees and I've quite often, like this is my personal opinion, but Australia has a huge temporary migrant population and no one talks about that. Um, and the fact that we are on precarious visas and so, you know, quite often you don't want to ruffle feathers and you don't want to step out of the line. And with so much of red tape, you don't, um, you know, you don't, you don't want to engage as much in certain things that you might be, you know, I don't know, um, maybe I wouldn't say there's like certain laws around it or whatever. Um, 
So my question is like, how do you navigate around the varying degrees of empathy and agency with different people all across Australia or Melbourne? They announced that 19,000 people will get visa who came from boats. I had meeting with Josh, um, yeah, Josh Byrne, and we discussed who came by boat after 2013. For me, I don't have visa now nearly 10 years. I don't have permanent. I'm working my, my, my life as a life, you know. If I was in Syria, I'll be killed for that I'm safe here. And I appreciate Australian to accept me, but no visa, no paperwork. Every three years I have permanent like a protection visa and finish and again they renew it. Now they announced that 19,000 people, people will have visa from, I don't know, 30,000. The other will be on the limbo, to, like we see how it's got. When I went to Josh, he mentioned the people who finish their visa, that the paperwork finish, they start to send them email and they apply. For the other, it's easy to apply because already you have the paperwork, you apply for the visa and they give you. For asylum seeker, they cannot apply. Immigration send them the email and you are ready to submit. They accept it or they don't. It's a long process. For me, like maybe one year my processing will go. But I'm fighting now for people who in Monos and Nauru that still fighting for their life. And I have people here that I trained last year. They don't have any. They are still in community. Six years in, in Nauru and four years here. The whole family, you know. The girl who come to me last year, 19 year old, she have a scholarship for three, like, you know, big, like Monash. Like, um, she have the paperwork, her math the highest, and she's in limbo. She don't know what she do. The, the processing with visa and immigration, it's, it's country for themselves. We cannot talk about, but for me, I tell you, like I'm all the time positive, and I'm doing my job as as Australian. I don't feel I'm not Australian because I have the language. I can, I have like people around me. I have like community, as we mentioned. For that, I'm here, and I'm happy in Australia. Even I don't have visa, but other people they feel down because they don't have any paper. They cannot do anything. They have no language, and we see how it's go with the government to accept them. Um, I might jump in as well. Um, I think that issue of precarity is shared, um, like it's really important for the community that you mentioned. Um, and it's like potentially it's, um, but we see precarity in a lot of situations as well, um, not to minimise individual settings of precarity, but I think what I'm trying to establish is that I think uh, there's a good understanding um, across the community that we do have um, settings that are really difficult and we need to do something different about this. Um, and so being able to grow a voice that represents um, a particular aspect of precarity and then join that voice to other examples of precarity. Um, but yeah, again, it's one of those things where um, either finding um, initiatives that are already underway or finding your core group of people that will work with you to start growing something. 
Um, but yeah, no, it's a really difficult thing. <laughs> I think the idea of like disenfranchisement as well is um, makes it challenging. And I think whether it's for those reasons or whether it's for um, other reasons of inequity. And, and I think um, the question then becomes like the onus should be put on, um, you know, public sector for understanding and doing due diligence to understand um, what makes up community and not just the preconceived notions of what that is. So whether, you know, there's a lot of great acknowledgement of um, First Nations people. Um, and then there's probably an acknowledgement or the, an assumption of what a community is. But I think it, it goes to that point of um, being, uh, checking yourself and saying, um, I might not actually know who that community, the real community is. And that onus being put on um, public sector as well as proponents when they're actually doing the work. So um, thanks everyone. Um, we are going to, um, we are very lucky to be partaking in some of Nairan's lovely um, food that she's brought to the event. So um, encourage everyone to um, have a bite and, and stay for a chat. Um, but thank you everyone for, for coming. Really appreciate it. And thank you to our awesome panel. Um, You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>